The scriptures this morning come from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, and 19 through 20. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride in riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away. But those who do the will of God live forever. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. This is the word of the Lord. As I indicated last week, I've begun a sermon series entitled Christ and Culture. I'm basing much of what I say on a classic book that was written by H. Richard Niebuhr in 1951. It is entirely appropriate for you to purchase this book and follow along with these sermons if you would like. But I've got to warn you, it is tough going. If you try this and you get bogged down reading Niebuhr, just pick up John Grisham or Danielle Steele. <laughs> and you don't have to feel worse about yourself for doing so. The book presents five ways in which individual Christians and Christianity writ large have related to culture throughout history. These are Christ against culture, Christ of culture, Christ and culture in paradox, Christ above culture, and Christ transforming culture. Each sermon will discuss a particular way, and in this series, when we say the word culture, you can basically translate civilization. Culture is everything we do in and through and on nature. It's our achievements, our accomplishments, our hopes, our ideals, our work, our economics. Everything in which we live is what we mean by culture. Today's way, Christ Against Culture, is perhaps the easiest way to understand, but it is also the way that we in the Presbyterian Church, and particularly at Westminster, least embody. It is therefore doubly important that we be fair in describing this way, that we be open to learning from it, and that we be clear as to how we differ from it. All of these I will seek to do in this sermon. So let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove. Come kindle the flame of sacred love in these warm hearts of ours. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. 
the primary biblical book to which Niebuhr turns for the Christ against culture position is the first letter of John. With eloquence and beauty, John weaves together three themes of love. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for one another. In the passage Megan read, John writes, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. We love because God first loved us. As eloquent and thorough as John is in describing God's love, it is our response to that love in which John is most interested. And it is in this matter, our response, that John develops his Christ against culture position. You see, for John, a focus on God's love without a corresponding human love is false. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters, he says, are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they cannot see. John's deep and positive affirmation of love stands in sharp contrast with his dark view of the world in which love occurs. Do not love the world or things in the world, he says. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. In his Christ against culture position, John moves from expressing deep and beautiful love of God to calling Christians to oppose or withdraw from the darkness of the world in which that love is expressed. Christ against culture. Two historical figures have embodied Christ against the culture one being the second century theologian Tertullian and another the 19th century novelist Leo Tolstoy. Tertullian believes that by definition Christianity is a way of life that is separate from culture. He calls for a rigorous morality of obedience to Christ's literal commandments including the love of fellow believers and the love of enemies. He calls for non-resistance to evil, for prohibitions against the expression of anger, against lust. Tertullian condemns what we would call today civil religion, singing the national anthem, saluting the flag, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. He is also against participation in political life or in military service. 
He calls Christians to opt out of business and commerce, philosophy, the arts, literature, the theater, tragedy, and music, Tertullian wrote, are ministers of sin. That's why we don't have the choir in today. (laughs) Now, centuries later, after writing War and Peace, Leo Tolstoy found himself overwhelmed by the meaninglessness of existence and by the tawdriness of the aristocratic European culture of which he was a part. In the midst of a deep spiritual crisis, Tolstoy turned to the Jesus Christ of the Gospels as his sole and explicit authority for life. Tolstoy proceeded to withdraw as much as he could from all aspects of culture in which he was involved. Though his family did not share this commitment, he stepped aside from the management of the estate on which they lived. He He attempted to become his own tailor and cobbler, but he failed at becoming his own cook and Gardner. In his writings, Tolstoy summarizes what obedience to Christ means. Live at peace with all people and never consider your anger against anyone justified. Do not make the desire for sexual relations an amusement. Never take an oath to anyone, anywhere, on anything. Never resist an evildoer by force. Do not meet violence with violence. If they beat you, endure it. If they take your possessions, yield them up. If they compel you to work, work. Never make distinctions between one's own and other nations. Never bear enmity to a foreign nation. Never make war or take part in warfare. Behave to all people of whatever race they may be as you behave to your own people. Like Tertullian before him, Tolstoy rejects and indicts every aspect of human civilization. State, church, private property, philosophy, science, the arts. In his post-conversion writings, Tolstoy is fully Christ against culture. So where do we see this position or this tendency in the church? in Christianity manifested today. We see it where we've seen it for centuries. In monastic communities, many of which still follow the rule of Benedict. We see it in Amish and Quaker expressions of of faith, communities which forego electricity and transportation and the conveniences of modern life. And I believe we see it in movements from the left or right, which in the name of Christ oppose or withdraw from society because of any number of practices adopted or historical developments that have occurred. 
In the name of Christ, people protest for or against marriage equality, for or against abortion rights, for or against income inequality, for or against military action or inaction. They withdraw support from or refuse to participate in institutions which practice that to which, in the name of Christ, they oppose. This, too, I believe, is a Christ-against-culture instinct. I also believe there is a measure of Christ-against-culture today in denominations and traditions like ours, where over the past 20 or 30 years, interest has grown in forms of worship that more or less remove the worshiper from the world for a focused time of prayer, reflection, meditation, devotion, spiritual practice. Churches all over the country have seen the adoption of liturgical practices from the Iona community in Scotland, where our youth traveled two summers ago. They've seen interest in Orthodox worship, such as Vesper services that we have had here, interest in spiritual direction and formation. Each of these, in my understanding, seeks to help Christians withdraw from the world, even if only for a brief period of time, to focus on the love of God, the love of neighbor, the love of one another. In many ways, these instincts for worship are Christ against culture. On the opposite end of the scale, we've seen in American culture, including in our own Reformed tradition, the development of large evangelical megachurches, churches of five and ten and 20,000 members that seek to create through the congregation an alternative culture in which individuals or families can live out nearly all of their social, recreational, educational, and religious lives in the company of other Christians. Such churches often establish their own schools, create their own sports leagues, offer their own financial planning and tax advice, provide their own meal service for church events, all to encourage people to spend as much of their lives as possible in church so as to limit exposure to the evil of the world. Again, this is a Christ-against-culture instinct. I was talking to my mom on the phone this week and asking her what was going on in the church I grew up in, and she said that they had lost their maintenance supervisor. He had left, and she had heard by the, by the grapevine that the minister had heard that the big megachurch down the street employs no one on their maintenance staff, that members of the church do all of the cleaning and the trash emptying and the repairs and everything. And it's a church with 10,000 members and a huge facility. I said, well, how's that going in your church, Mom? And she said, terrible. The, the building has never looked worse and more cluttered than it does today. And I said in a moment of rare theological insight, that probably, you know, I've got to turn everything into a theological issue, that probably the reason it works for the megachurch down the street is that they have a theology that emphasizes people to be in church 
all the time as a protection in the world. So the volunteer pool for cleaning the toilets and waxing the floor is much larger than in churches like ours where we encourage people to live in the world and therefore it's harder and harder to get people to do the more mundane tasks. It's a theological issue. Two different models. So what do we make of this Christ against culture position? How do we assess it? What can it teach us? Christ against culture, to be honest, has much appeal. Its adherents genuinely seek to do what Jesus did. Most often they act with sincerity, commitment, devotion, intensity, seriousness, and sacrifice. The position that they embody can remind us and teach us that for every Christian and every church, there is a difference between Christ and Caesar, between church and world, between believer and non-believer, between revelation and reason, between God's will and human will. All of these things, the Christ against culture position teaches us. But in reality, very few Christians are able to oppose or withdraw from the world fully. Even if as Christians we feel called to oppose culture, we normally are able to do so only selectively. And in doing so, we normally make use of some of the tools of the very culture that we oppose. For example, there are many Christ against culture Christians, and, and other types too, who oppose the more open and permissive sexual values that have come into American culture the last 50 years. Yet still consume products from the advertising, the technology, and the media industries that make expression of such values accessible to virtually every person of any age who has an electronic device in the home or in the hand. Christ against culture, Christians may oppose abortion, but support the death penalty or the use of military force. Or oppose the use of military force and the death penalty, but not abortion. Any combination of these three positions is more consistent with other theological viewpoints in the Christ and culture debate. But for a pure Christ and culture position, the taking of human life in any form is normally opposed. Theologically speaking, Christ against culture Christians may fail to see the good in creation. They may overlook the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They may fail to see the degree to which evil exists, not simply within culture, but also within the human heart, as well as within Christian institutions. 
Christ-against culture Christians sometimes fail to see the log in the eye of the communities to which they withdraw while pointing out the many specks in the eyes of culture. And finally, by stressing purity of action, Christ-against-culture Christians may subtly bar the door to Christ who makes all things new, sometimes including even the things he enjoins us to do. Niebuhr concludes, and I concur, that Christ against culture is a necessary position, but it is an inadequate position. The movement of withdrawal and and renunciation is a necessary element in every Christian life, but it must be followed by an equally necessary movement of responsible engagement into the world into the cultural tasks. As we will see for the four other models that are coming up in this series, ultimately, Christ against culture cannot contain or express the whole of Christ's intention for us in the created order. None of the models can do that. And that is why we need them all together. About 5.30 yesterday afternoon, I left my desk upstairs at which I was still working on an even longer draft of this sermon than you have gotten. And I drove down to the riverfront in Old Town and boarded the cherry blossom to conduct the wedding of one of our members, Karen Van Rokel to Jose Antonio Trace. Like many of you, I've known Karen for about a decade. As a church member who sometimes sings in the choir, and later as one of several single women in our congregation who, in the middle years of her life, adopted children, Natasha from Russia and David from Guatemala. The wedding was delayed because of a technical glitch with the music. So I stood on the second deck of the boat and began to just take in the people and the surroundings. The river, the seagulls, the sailboats. In one direction I saw the Capitol Dome scaffolded as it is these days. Closer the white domes of the Naval Research Laboratory. Further south, the vast expanse of the Wilson Bridge, the National Harbor beyond it with its slowly turning Ferris wheel, and the welcome sight of construction cranes way in the distance. Then I began to notice the people. People of all ages and races, sizes and colors, languages and conditions, strolling along the waterfront, stretched out or playing in the park. I saw children and parents, infants in strollers and grandfathers in wheelchairs. I saw drummers surrounded by onlookers who put coins and bills in a nearby jar. 
And I saw other musicians who were not surrounded by onlookers and didn't have coins and bills in their jars. Through a picture window at the chart house, I saw a waiter fluff a white tablecloth and spread it out on a table, and I saw a little girl on the boardwalk licking an ice cream cone. And then the wedding happened. Irish music, classical music, Ave Maria, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Jose the groom speaks only Spanish. Karen speaks both Spanish and English. A translator stood next to me to repeat the service paragraph by paragraph in Spanish. As Natasha came down the aisle with a basket of petals, and then David followed holding the white pillow with the two gold bands attached. I thought about the union of these two people, these two cultures, these two countries, these two children, each receiving a father they will know for the first time. The four of them forming a family that represents four countries speaking three languages. I had come to all this from writing this long draft of a sermon called Christ Against Culture. Against Culture. I know in my heart that there is much in our culture that Christ opposes because it is opposed to Christ. There is much in our culture in which we, his followers, simply must refuse to participate. There is much in our culture that we simply must oppose. I have seen enough of it firsthand and I've experienced enough of it myself. But for the life of me, standing on the boat, perusing the city, watching the people, conducting the wedding, I couldn't see any of it. I couldn't see at that moment any of it to oppose. All I could think is what's not to like? What's not to celebrate? What's not to bless? Let us pray.